Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Positive Pessimist Podcast. It's Wrestling Wednesday. My guest today is Mark Schultz. Mark Schultz is a two-time Olympian. He's a two-time world champion. He's an Olympic champion. He's a three-time NCAA champion. He's a California state champion, and he did all that in a 10-year span. So, absolutely incredible. Can't wait to talk to him. Total legend of the sport. And let's bring him in. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, dude. I, you uh, you were on a poster my entire life in my uh, in my room that 1984 poster, the Vision Quest thing, and and all that. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. So, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I was just saying in the intro that you had the most amazing ten year career that you could possibly have. I mean, you won a California State title. Three NCAA titles. You were a two-time Olympian, a world two-time world champion, and Olympic champion. And you started essentially when you were a senior in high school. Is that correct? A junior. Okay, but you didn't wrestle. You only wrestled like ten matches that junior year, right? That's right. I lost six of them. <laughs> yeah. So I got kicked off the team because I couldn't win. Oh, really? Competition. Yeah, the coach kicked me off the team because I wasn't good enough. Oh, that was what? when I was a 130-pounder. Okay. Then I grew 30 pounds over the summer, and I went 159 the next year in California after I transferred from Ashland High School to Palo Alto, California. Okay. Well, that kind of leads me to my next question because I was going to ask you, weren't you big to be a gymnast? But I guess it's because you grew so much, right? Yeah, well, I wasn't as big as a 130-pounder. You know, I was a gymnast when I was a... I started gymnastics in the 8th grade, and then I quit gymnastics in the 10th grade. I was about 125 pounds or something in the 10th grade. And then I started wrestling in the 11th grade at 130 pounds. So I was small until my senior year in high school. Then I had a growth spurt between my junior and senior year, and went up 30 pounds. So you didn't start gymnastics until you were in eighth grade, and then by the time you were a sophomore, you were the Northern California all-around champion? So so is it pretty safe to say you were a natural athlete? (laughs) Yeah, I'd say, though, you know, the word natural is a little deceiving because it kind of uh, sounds like I didn't have to work that hard to become, but I really worked my butt off. Yeah. And, you know, repetition is the key. And after a while, your muscle memory takes over and your body has its own brain and responds, you know, the way that it's been trained. I hate to use that cliche, you know, the training takes over. A lot of guys use that to, like, brag about them being in the you know, Navy SEALs or something. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's true, though. Your body does take over, and as a training takes over, your body's got its own mind, you know? Yeah. And especially in gymnastics, which is a very difficult sport, and uh, I'm really pissed off at Pierce Morgan at criticizing Simone Biles because gymnastics is so... It, you have to be so perfect in your technique. I mean... If you missed your bar by one millimeter, you know, you could break your neck. 
Yeah. In fact, gymnasts have the highest broken net cap per capita of any NCAA sport. It's a dangerous sport. I mean, back when I did it, it was a lot more dangerous because nowadays they've got a crash pits. You can dive in head first and not even feel it. But back when I did it, it was just like, go for it, dude. We'll try to catch you. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you still do a backflip? Have you tried recently? I haven't tried. I had a, a very serious infection in my neck and I was within, I, I, I had this infection and I was in so much pain I couldn't move and I called 911 and I said, you're going to have to break the door down because I don't, I can't even move. I can't get off my bed. I was in so much pain and they came and got me and uh, took me to the hospital. I, and I grabbed the EMT guy and I said, knock me out. I'm just in so much pain. And I woke up and my doctor was like hovering over me, looking down on me. And he goes, if we don't operate now, you'll be dead by tomorrow. Wow. So I did operate. And I woke up 30 days later from a coma and uh, I had an eight-level cervical fusion. Man. Man. Sorry to hear so, that. I'm glad you recovered from it, though. Yeah, I mean, I'm walking and talking, you know. Yeah. Well, God. God but bless. I'm not doing Have you been watching the Olympics at all? No? No, I actually try to uh, stay away from watching that. And people are always telling me about it, thinking that I want to know. But I eventually find out about it later, you know, on my own time scale. I just, I have a hard time watching. I think I get PTSD. It just brings me back to that time and I'm just like start breathing really hard. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, going back to your going back to your high school career when you were a California State champ your senior year. I read last night that you didn't win. You're the only California State champ in history that didn't win a tournament up until the qualifying uh, tournaments to get to state, and then you obviously won state. Did something click for you, or was it just a... Um, you know, that was a miracle. It was like the most miraculous year of my life. I I didn't win. I only went to two tournaments my entire life. Oh, wow. I went to the Alisal Invitational. I lost my first match, and I was eliminated because the guy I lost to got knocked out, and that put me out. And then I went to the Monte Vista Invitational, and I took third, and uh, I only lost two matches that year. I only went to two tournaments, but I knew I was a lot better than I was competing. I just had a hard time putting everything together in competition because the pressure is just in, so intense, you know. A lot of guys, a lot of really good guys, choke under the pressure, and that was a thing for me, and I was trying to I didn't have that much experience and I was trying to compete against guys with a lot more experience and not choke. And so I, I knew I was good though. I knew I was good enough to beat almost anybody in high school because I was Northern California state gymnastics champion. So I knew I was a better athlete than anybody that was competing. And I uh, had this guy on my team named Jeff Newman who went he was weight right above, and he went undefeated all year. And 
he won every tournament he went to. And me and him trained together every day. And he was undefeated. He beat the Central Coast Section champion at my weight, which gave that Central Coast Section champion his only loss of the year. And so even, even though I wasn't good enough or I wasn't winning the competition, I knew I was good enough to win because I was doing so good against Jeff. And plus I was doing good against the Stanford guys because my dad was a professional comedian. And so I'd memorize like Bill Cosby routines and Steve Martin routines. Then I'd go over to Stanford and I kind of followed Dave's past. You know, Dave wrestled with the Stanford guys the year before I did. And you know, Dave had the greatest high school senior year in history, which is kind of weird because here's him on one side of the of the scale, and there's me on the other. He's the greatest high school senior year in history. Here, I didn't even win a tournament until my senior year and state, and uh, I would memorize these comedy routines. I go over to Stanford and I repeat them to the coach, and the coach liked me, and so he let me hang around him. And so I hung around him and the Stanford guys all the time. Of course, I grew up in Stanford, and that's where I was born and raised. And uh, I was wrestling with Stanford guys. So it was a huge advantage for a high school kid to be wrestling with college guys because the biggest jump in quality you're ever going to make is from high school to college. Yeah. So even though I wasn't doing that good in these high school against these – well, I've only lost two matches that year. And, but I didn't – even though I wasn't winning tournaments – I knew I was good enough to win. I just didn't know if I could put it together. And I just, I also studied this Eastern Indian philosopher named Jiddu Krishnamurti. And he taught me how to live in the present, die to the past, observe my mind, observe the world for what is, not what should be. And so everything that I had done in the past, I just, I died to the past. And I lived completely and totally in the present. I didn't think about the past or the future. I just lived totally in the present. And, you know, I I miraculously, you know, at the end of my senior year, I miraculously won the league, the region, the Central Coast section. I beat the Central Coast section champion that Jeff Newman beat, you know, the guy who was only lost was to Jeff that, that whole year in the finals. And I got named the outstanding wrestler of Central Coast section. And then that guy, his name was Joe Gillery, he went to state and he got beat pretty bad, I think, his first match. And I was like, man, these guys at state are so good. But I was still living in the present. I was just taking one match at a time. That's one thing I did when I competed was I'd look at the bracket sheet and I would just find out who my next guy was. And then I'd walk away. I didn't even care what was beyond that. All I cared about was my next step match. And I did that all throughout my entire career. I would just see who my next guy was and then walk away. I didn't want to know anything that was going on beyond that. Because that's all that mattered. You know, my life existed from that moment on until that match. And then I looked at the next match, you know. So I just got really lucky at state. I beat my first guy seven to six. It was not really that good. It was fifth in this section. And then... I went up against the guy that was ranked number one. And we, I was losing to him with 10 seconds left by one point, And I escaped and went into overtime. And I caught him with a banana split and beat him six to nothing in overtime. And then I was going up, and that guy was undefeated. And there's another guy who was undefeated in the semis. And uh, he was beating me two to nothing. He took me down, rode me the whole 
first period. And then I caught him. I had the Stanford guy named Bob McNeil, and I caught him with a what I call a Bob McNeil side roll. And I would always go to that side roll. I caught Joe Guillory in it in the CCS finals. I caught this guy in it, and uh, I put him on his back and held him the whole second period and won five to two. And in the finals, I'm going up against my third undefeated guy, and he takes wow. me down, I escape. He takes me down immediately again, I escape. In the second period, I catch him with a Bob McNeil side roll for two, and then third period, he's down, and I ride him for about a minute, and all he's got to do is escape and keep his one-point lead, and he's the state champion. Well, he stands up, breaks my lock, and right before he escaped, I grabbed his leg, and then I I had trained so hard. I recovered cardiovascularly just slightly ahead of him, and as soon as I did that, I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to die to the past, and that might be my last match ever because I was planning on I didn't know what I was going to do. I, nobody knew who I was. I was going to join the Marines and meet, meet go to some country and meet new and interesting people and then kill them. And then I was going to... Uh, anyway, I just lifted this guy. I did something I had never done before. I lift. I had a single leg on him. And I just thought, you know what? This is it. I got to try So I did a back play with a single leg and miracle upon miracles, he landed on his back and I just happened to have my arm right there ready to put in a half Nelson. I cradled him for three. I won the state. It was a miracle. Most miraculous year of my life. And I had some pretty miraculous years. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that is an awesome story. So how did you, how did you end up at, uh, it, it was uh, UCLA, right? Okay. Yeah. I, because I won the state and no, and I came out of nowhere. Nobody knew who I was. Nobody recruited me. And by the time they were giving the scholarships away, all the scholarships were given away, except uh, I knew uh, one guy at UCLA, Brady Hall, who was the assistant coach there. And I also, of course, my brother was going to Oklahoma State at the time. My brother, that year that I won the state, he... What, he took third in the NCAA. He was named freshman of the year. And I heard he almost beat Mark Terrell, and th- who won the outstanding wrestler that year. And uh, so I was only recruited by Oklahoma State and UCLA. And on my trip to Oklahoma State, Dave, I could tell Dave was not happy. He wasn't going to classes. He did his, and co- the coach, Tommy Chesbro, he wanted Dave to stay at 150, and he wanted to put Ricky Stewart up at 158 because it would make the team better. But Dave was having such a hard time making 150. He really wasn't a 150 pounder. He wrestled at 170 at the state championships. And he actually went up a weight. He was actually at my weight, 159, but he went up a weight to 170 because he won his senior year. He wins the. The, the Great Plains, Pins, Chuck, Yagla, and Beach, Joe Tice. And, uh, you know, this is a two-time NCAA champion, outstanding wrestler, Joe Tice, the World Cup champion. And he goes to Tbilisi, and he takes second, which is higher than any other American on the U.S. team. He comes back, wins the state, but he didn't weigh in. Because, so they made him go up weight to 170, and he pinned his way through the state and then beat the guy in the final 12-1. Then he goes to National Open 
Greco-Roman championship and wins that, gets the most far in the least amount of time. All while he's still in high school. Man. Well, he's going to Oklahoma State now. And uh, when I was out there, he said, man, I don't know if I if I would go here to Oklahoma State because I'm not really that happy. And Chesbro wants me to stay at 150, and I can't really do it. And he was good enough to make the team in any way. But uh, the, Stewart couldn't cut to 50, and they thought Dave still could. But that's what was making him the most miserable, I think. So Dave kind of hinted. He didn't say it outright. They kind of hinted he wasn't happy. He wouldn't want to stay there. And so I thought, anyway, even if I did sign a Oklahoma State, they would probably crush my confidence. Because I'd only been wrestling 16 months. Yeah. And so I thought, if I go to Oklahoma State, I'm going to be going up against the best college guys in the country just to make the team. These guys could crush my confidence. And confidence is either built or destroyed every day. And if they're constantly destroying my confidence before I can even build it up, uh, you know, I, I may, it may ruin my wrestling career. So I kind of took an intermediate step. I went to a school that wasn't that great in wrestling, UCLA, but UCLA was awesome. It was, you know, right next to Hollywood. It was always sunny and I had all movies started walking around and it was beautiful girls everywhere, just bikinis. It was awesome. I loved it. My freshman year it was awesome, but there was a problem at UCLA and the coaches we're always fighting with each other. The head coach and assistant coach didn't get along. And I was just like, why don't you just quit or just fire him or just separate? You know, why do you guys have to coach together? And it separated the team. Like half the team sided with the assistant coach, half the team sided with the head coach. And it just created a terrible environment. And I thought, man, if we stay here at UCLA, winning the NCAA championship is going to be a miracle. But we did have our first NCAA champion, Fred Bona, at heavyweight that year. Anyway, we had a really great team, too. And anyway, it got, we went, me and Dave both tried out for the junior world team when we made it. And we met Jim Humphrey, the assistant coach at Oklahoma. And we thought, let's transfer to Oklahoma. And Dave, of course, was good enough to make the team in any way, anywhere. Me, I was kind of scared to death because. I had only been wrestling a year or two, two years, you know, and it just, I didn't know if I could do it or not. And so it was pretty frightening. And plus the guy at Oklahoma that I was going to have to beat to make the team was named Israel Shepard, who was a total badass and was built like Hercules. And he just got his, he cornered his hair when he wrestled and he would drive those corners into my face and, just scrape all the skin. It's kind of like steel wool. I don't know if you ever got the black guy's corner out here, but it's that scrape, like the first couple layers of skin cells off my face every time. And I take a shower afterwards and it would sting like crazy. And I'm just like, man, this guy's killing me. But then one day my headgear padding wore away and the, the Cliff Keen headgear and that metal was shining through. And he went to headbutt me one day and I, Turn my head and cut it, and I thought I just found the answer to Israel's corners. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, Coach Dan Abel, who I think is a fantastic coach, uh, he was very smart about moving me and Dave and Israel around. You know, he's got the three guys crammed in two weights, and 
so he puts he redshirted Israel the year he re, he wrestled Israel the year me and Dave transferred and redshirted. Then he put me at one sixty seven, put Dave at one fifty eight, and redshirted Israel. And the next year I went up to seventy seven. Dave went up to sixty seven, and Israel went back to fifty eight. And man, we had a good team that year. We broke the NCAA scoring record, but so did Iowa and Iowa State. We took third. Oh wow. <laughs> Oh wow! I didn't realize that. Yeah, I, I saw that you were eighteen and eight as a as a true freshman, which is at Division One, especially with the amount of experience you had, is just crazy to me that you were able to go eighteen and eight. And and Not that good. Well, <laughs> when you have only wrestled two years, to me, it's phenomenal. And you well, made you made the junior world team also. I know that was. I didn't expect to make the junior world team. Actually, I lost the junior world rest loss to Ed Bannock. But then the coach switched me and Dave. See, me and Dave weighed the same. And so one of us had to go 180 and one had to go 63. So I went up to 180. Bannock beat me, best two out of three. And then the coach decided to flip us and put me at 63 and wrestle Dave off against Bannock. And Dave beat Bannock and made the team at 180. And so we both made the team that way. But uh, yeah, I lost four matches my my freshman year at 150. The coach there, Dave Otto, he was he grew up in the 60s. He wrestled, in the, I think he was NCAA champion uh, in 1960, and he was also the outstanding wrestler. And back then, he, these guys cut their balls off to make weight. I mean, they would he was walking around at like 155 or something. He cut down to 123. Wow. So, we never, I never did that. First of all, I was a gymnast, and gymnasts are super lean. They don't have the weight to cut. So I had to, so Dave Hobble wants me to cut down to 150 at the, for this road trip. And so I do, and I'm so dead from dehydrating, like extreme dehydration. I lost four of my eight losses that year at 150. Okay. And then when I got back from that road trip, I told myself I was never going to listen to anybody tell me what way I was going to go again. And I, ne- I never did. I became my own best coach after that. And I think that's true with everybody. They have to eventually become their own best coach. Yeah. So you ended up winning three NCAA titles, and one of them was against Ed Bannock. Do you remember how many matches you lost in those three years? Oh, yeah. It's on my record. Uh I lost five matches. I lost three my sophomore year, two my junior year, and went undefeated my last 44 matches. Okay. Uh, one of the losses was to Bannock and your junior year, and who who else? Kentucky. Okay. There was a guy, from, a freshman from Kentucky. I was beating him eight to nothing, and uh, I'm turning him over with a fourth half. And he reaches back and grabs me by my head. And the referee at Kentucky had, was a notorious for calling people in defensive pins. And he called me pin. Oh, wow. And I was so furious. I took my headgear off. I threw it at him. I challenged him to a fight. I told him I was going to wait for him outside after the match. And I got the team penalized. Two pen- First, it was one point. Then it was another point. And then the coach dragged me away to keep from getting another point. But those were my two losses that year. 
Uh, once was Bannock at the Midlands, five to four, and then once was the this Kentucky guy. Okay. Um, what do you remember most about the, about your NCAA titles? You mean, well, I have three of them. Are you talking about the Bannock one only? Well, no, sir. I'm just curious. Like, is there one thing that stands out in your mind about about your three titles, or is it? Uh, you know, I mean, you you won three of them, obviously, but. I'm just wondering, like, what about those three do you remember the most? I watched the Bannock well, match last night. That was amazing. That was that was crazy. Because yeah. he had beat me four times before that. And um, my first NCAA title was against Mike Deanna. My second was against Bannock. My third one was against Goldman. And all three of them were Iowa Hawkeyes. And after I won my third NCAA title, Dan Gable comes out with a book called The Iowa Way. And I thought, you know, I, I'm an author too. I wrote, you know, this autobiography called Fox Catcher. And but I was sick of the naming it How to Beat the Iowa Way. <laughs> anyway, I, I, the first time I won the NCAAs, it was what I remember most about that match was the referee screwing the hell out of me. I mean, he kept calling me for stalling. And I'll admit, I do have a low max VO2, and I've probably been called for stalling more than any other three-time NCAA champion in history because I just, I'm a sprinter. I'm not a long-distance runner. And it's genetic. You can't do anything about it. You can train yourself to increase your max VO2 about eight points, but you can't, it's genetic. You're limited by your genetics. And, um, I was, I, I took my, uh, my first one was against uh, Mike Deanna, and I took him down, and I, he escaped. I took him down again. They called me for stalling, and they called me again, then they called me again. Wow. And now I scored four to three, and he, I've got two takedowns. He's got one escape, and I'm thinking, I'm getting screwed here. And then the referee is yelling at me for stalling again, and I'm thinking, he's going to give me a stalling call right now. And so I just called time out. He goes, what's the matter? And I laid down on my back and I grabbed my knee. And I wasn't really hurt, but I had to stop this guy from screwing me out of a national title. And my <laughs> trainer, who's a great friend of mine, his name is Ron Tripp, he comes over to me and he starts rubbing my other leg. And I go... That's the wrong leg. <laughs> and he looks down at me and he says, you faker. <laughs> I said, shut up. The referee's standing right there. I'm like, this is, I, I, didn't, I didn't tell him to shut up, but I'm thinking, shut up. This is a national title on the line. What are you doing? And, you know, and I was just, anyway, uh, I got back up and I ended up beating him 10 to 4. That was a huge... Uh, relief to get the monkey off my back. You know, first national titles, really. And then the next year, I go against Bannock, and we met twice that year, and he beat me at the Midlands, and I went to Tbilisi, and I went to, uh, and I took second. I took fourth, but they gave me a silver medal because that's how they just give the next highest foreigner. If there's three Russians ahead of you, then give you the silver medal because you're the highest foreign and non-Russian. Yeah. But I noticed the, the guy that won my weight had a staggered stance, and I always had a square stance. And so 
I swear, and I thought to myself, I switch to a stagger stance like John Smith and Kale Sanderson. I could save a half a step on my shot. So I switched to a stagger stance. I never went back to a square stance. And I wrestled Bannock three days after I got back from the duel from the Tbilisi. And the day, I mean, I got back and my hours are all screwed up. And I show up in the Oklahoma wrestling room like a half hour late for practice. And Coach Abel is losing his mind because he's got this huge duel with Iowa set up. And there's going to be 11,000 people in the arena. And he's just losing his mind. He sees that I'm half hour late and he's yelling at me for being late. And so he goes, that's it, Mark. You're off the team. And he goes over to my locker room and he locks all my stuff in my locker. And then he kicks my brother off the team, and he kicks Andre Metzger off the team. And I'm thinking, this isn't real. He's he's losing his mind because of this duel meet, you know. And but he forgot to tell me to get my weight. We lost a we had to lose an extra pound that 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 month, and so he didn't tell me. He didn't remind me of that. So the next day, I show up for weight uh, get weigh-ins and. I'm a pound over. He, he he just expected me to show. He didn't put me back on the team. He just expected me to be there. You know, it's like he expected me to read his mind. <laughs> and so anyway, then I went down to the sauna and I and I sauntered off the last pound that I forgot to cut off. And then I rested Bannock in the duel that night, and that was one of the greatest duels I've ever had. I mean, as far as matches go, that was one of the greatest matches me and Bannock ever had. And it was, it was, he's beating me nine to eight with two seconds left. And I did a limp arm fireman's to run the pipe and I took him down with two seconds left. And I looked up and the whole stadium jumps out of their seat. And it was just a really exciting, really great man. And uh, then we met at the NCAA finals and uh, I made a dumb move and I fell right on my back and then. I thought, you know, I'm down four to nothing. And so I'm thinking, man, you know when your back's up against the wall and you just got to throw the highest possible risk, risky move you can think of? Or, yeah. I tried to move. I had never done this move before. I just saw a video of Ben Peterson do it to a Russian in the World Cup. And so I just said, the heck with it. I'm going to try it. And I tried it, and it worked. And I spin on his back, and I got the lead, and then I kept the lead. And then, and then, like thirty seconds left, I knew he was going to throw a lateral drop. But I was, I, he had to throw something, and so I was waiting for it. And I circled back to the center of the mat so that uh, he, he would try it. I mean, I didn't really know what was. Gonna, you never know what's going to happen. You know, self violent chaos. But I was, I was waiting for that lateral drop. And as soon as he threw it, I limped. I, I just turned my, I, I just limped out and it spread my arms out just to stop myself from getting thrown. And, and then I caught him on his back for five. Yeah. And, and the next year I had a pretty boring match against Dwayne Goldman, who's, it was only four to two, but I didn't care. You know, that was a very difficult year for me because Andre Metzger graduated and he was one of my best friends. My brother graduated. He was like, my workout partner, my coach, and I was, and I, there was nobody on the team except me. I was all alone that whole year, and it was so difficult. And the coach was going through a divorce, so he was off 
he was gone a lot of time. Jim Humphrey, the coach that I went there for, he took a job as a national coach in Canada. So he was gone. So I was like all alone. And it was just, and I got hurt halfway through the season. And I didn't even wrestle like in practice, like the last two months of the year. I just go swimming to try to get my cardio up. But thank God it turned out okay. I got out alive. That's the biggest thing, you know. If you lose your seat, I would give away all my national titles to win one as a senior. I want to go out a winner. But yeah. I, if I would have won national, two nationals and lost as a senior, it would have ruined my life. Yeah. And it was so close. I was so close to losing. I mean, right before the finals, I mean, I'm being called. I had strep throat. I mean, going through the national strep throat. The referees are coming up to my brother and up to my coach, and they're telling him, hey, if Mark keeps stalling, we're not going to have any mercy. And, you know, I was like, okay, you know. All these people are telling me the same thing. I'm like, I get it, I get it, okay, okay. And just, and the pressure was just incredible. I didn't think that I could withstand that kind of pressure. And when when I was able to come out, you know, a, a winner from that thing, you know, it proved to myself something I never knew about myself. But man, the pressure was just—I've never—I've never felt pressure like that in my entire life. I still have recurring nightmares to this day, where I'm like, the day before nationals, my senior year, and I forgot to work out for the last two months for some reason, <laughs> and I'm trying to think of ways to get out of it. I'm thinking of taking a knife and stabbing myself in the leg, and all these things, and they'll just you know fake a bunch of injuries and cut. I mean, I'm. And then I wake up in a cold sweat. And I had this dream like 50 times. It's a recurring nightmare. But that's how important it was for me to win as a senior. Yeah, I, I read I read your book. And as I was reading it, I was like, man, I, I have a fair amount in common with Mark Schultz. Like just as far as like I was the same way as far as like I, I was a sprinter and I would get out to big leads. And then and then my I, I didn't have like the lung capacity as my brother he was always, you know, could just go forever. Um, I did notice, though, in your uh, match with Bannock, how you immediately did that backflip. And I'm like, man, he had a lot in the tank left to be able to do that immediately uh, the way you did. Well, I started changing my style away from... I used when I had such a low max VO2. I tried to eliminate that weakness by doing lots of long-distance running. I mean, if you added up the amount of miles that I've run... I'm sure I've circled the earth at least once. <laughs> and at my six weeks before, and I got to give Coach Abel a lot of credit to, for this. Six weeks before the NCAAs, he told the team that we're all going to get up at 6 a.m. and run 10 stadium stairs as a team. And I said, no way. I'm already pushing myself as hard as I can. There's no way I'm going to do that. I need my sleep. And he goes, yes, you are. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, no, yes. And we're back. We're fighting in his office over this. And I just left like, I'm not doing it. And then the next day, of course, I show up. And I ended up, and I got, I had run stadium so much prior to that time that I didn't have to look at the stairs to run. I could just look straight at the top. And I could just feel the stairs under me. And so I was faster than everybody. I was already the best sprinter on the team besides Israel Shepard. And we were pretty even. But I was always the first guy to the top. And I 
And man, that really, and then your legs just pump with blood, your lungs are just burning. With, and that uh, training, uh, that's what made a big difference for me in that bank match. And I got to where I was recovering so fast. That's why I was able to do that backflip at the end. Yeah. Did you and Bannock become friends since you were on the same Olympic team together? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think his wife didn't like me that much. But I think we got along. Yeah. I don't know what the deal was. You know, it, it, you know, he's got his life. He went up a weight. You know, he went 190. Matter of fact, he came up to me after the NCAA. He asked me what weight I was going next year. And I said, 177. He goes, I'm going 190. And Coach Abel thought that was pretty cool for him to say that after. And then he went up to 98. He wins the Olympic gold medal. as Olympic champion. And, you know, we had a very tough uh, training camp at uh, Big Bear, California with the Gable. And, man, I tell you, there's so much adversity at that, at that camp. I had all these, these wives, like, attacking me because I brought my girlfriend in there and we weren't married and and I'm thinking, these guys get the comfort of having a woman with them while they're getting ready for the Olympics, the biggest moment of their life. I should, too. And I bring my girlfriend in there, and the wives just went crazy. They're like, hey, Mark can't do I'm like, what do you care what I do? You live your life. Let me live mine. Leave yeah. me alone. But we had this, they created such a hassle for me. They created, this, they had this huge meeting with all the administrators from USA Wrestling and the coaches and all the wrestlers and their wives and everybody, the referees, the whole camp was in this meeting. And Gable says to me, Mark, here's the deal. If you guys are married, she can stay. And if you guys aren't married, she's got to leave. And I thought, okay, fine. We're married. Even though we weren't, and they go, okay, meeting's over, and then <laughs> she stayed, and I did, and I kept going the way I was going. But for the end of the cause, that much trouble for me for no reason. I yeah. thought, what do you like the moral police? What yeah. do you care what I do? Yeah, if if I'm doing something immoral, God will punish me at the Olympics. <laughs> you don't have to punish me now. Yeah. But I had so much adversity going on in the, at that camp. And then I hurt my neck. And I had to have, like, massages on this one nerve every day. And this doctor was really great there. And he, anyway, uh, Gable was really smart getting us up there at high altitude, you know, to build up our mitochondria and stuff. And, Red blood cells. I, I got pretty lucky to win the Olympics, actually. I mean, so many things had to fall in place just right, and they did. And it was a miracle. I mean, I got really lucky. I mean, I had to, you know, the fact that I wasn't thrown out, you know, the fact that I went up against the number one guy in the world, my very first match. Oh, wow. Forget about the boycott. This guy beat everybody at the boycott of the Olympics. He was a Turkish guy. Resit Krabajet, and I did this move, double wrist lock, and I broke his elbow, and and they threw me out of the match. They disqualified me from the match for excessive brutality, but they didn't throw me out of the tournament, which I guess they could have done. So that was one thing that had to go right. And then against the Canadian who had my college coach, Jim Humphrey, in his corner, and he's a coach, national coach of Canada, 
And he's been spending two years trying to figure out how to beat me. Yeah. And it he he was ahead of he was beating me after the first period. And I came back and beat him and it came down to one move at the very end. He, the referees had already cost me twice. I had to, they they, were, they wanted to throw me out. They didn't like me because I broke the third arm, and so they're looking for reasons to throw me out. So they kept costing me, costing me. And finally, they started yelling at me. You know, at the end, like "Passivus, Passivus," you know, stalling red and French so international language, and. I knew they were going to throw me out if I didn't shoot. So I didn't even set it up. I met my plan. I thought the score was four to three. And I thought if I gave this point away, I'd win the criteria tiebreaker. But I wouldn't have. And so I threw myself in there thinking I'm going to give a takedown away. And he just happened to grab me in a front body lock. And I just happened to have this counter called the duck scoop. So I duck scooped him and I took him. I switched from playing to give away a takedown to attacking. And I switched and it's a fraction of a second and just attacked and I took him down and that's how I won 5-3. But if, I didn't even know I would have lost the criteria tiebreaker until after the Olympics were over and oh, they gave wow. me the bracket sheet and I took it home, put it on my wall. And a year later, I'm looking at the bracket sheet and it occurs to me that I would have lost the tiebreaker criteria. It was so weird sitting in my office all alone, coming to this realization. It was just, I, I can't even explain what the feeling is like. It's so weird. It was like, oh, thank God. And I had no way to tell. It was just me sitting there coming yeah. to this realization. Weird. <laughs> So, so how did that feel to, uh, to not only win, but to win with your brother and to be on such a legendary team? It was, oh, it was great, you know. Afterwards, they took all the medalists to uh, three cities. One was L.A., which we were already in. We went to the L.A. Hilton and to meet President Reagan. Wow. And we walked up. To, and me and Dave were standing about three-quarters of the way, maybe halfway back of the line. And we're all standing in line to meet the president. And it just so happens, coincidentally, there was a wrestler at Oklahoma. His name was Bobby D. Prospero. Well, his dad just happened to be the head of the Secret Service. And he was always standing next to Reagan. And so he came to Oklahoma once to see his son. And we met him and hung out with him for a while. It was great. Well, he sees me and Dave in the back of the line. He's like, hey, Mark, Dave, he's yelling. Mark, Dave, come on up here. So... We come up, we walk through the velvet ropes before anybody else. And I'm actually the first guy to meet the president. And he he says to the president, these are the guys I was telling you about. Oh, and wow. so I meet President Reagan, and then I meet Nancy, and then I go to give her a kiss on the cheek, and she turns and kisses me around the lips. Wow. <laughs> no tongue. <laughs> It's funny, man. Um, so then you win the Worlds in 85, and then uh, you won it again in 87. Were you injured in 86? Because I saw that you won the U.S. Nationals. Um... Well, you know how Simone Biles is getting all this criticism? I mean, not crit- there's only one guy I know that's criticizing him. That's uh, Pierce Morgan. I don't think, I think 
you can't criticize her. You just can't, you know, and she's talking, she's, she's, she's being honest. She's saying, I want to deal with my mental health issues. Well, wrestling back then when I was competing was so hard because there was no money and we were financially supporting ourselves. I was making $7,000 at Stanford a year. Yeah. And that's ridiculous. And I had a very difficult uh, experience with a guy that was trying to take advantage of my name and he said he was going to promote me and all. And it was all lies. And I ended up wasting a lot of time, even some money. I had to hire a lawyer and he called the police. And it was just such a distraction, you know, that it just, it, and my motivation was already, you know, a lot of people, when they describe me, they're like, which Mark Schultz is going to show up today? Is it going to be this guy or is it going to be the, the champion, you know? And when I showed up in the world for 86, the stress and the anxiety that I had suffered through that year with this situation with this guy, it just, it took its toll, you know, and I, I, I was spending all my time training, you know, I had to deal with this and I didn't have a way to get another job and make more money and just, Back then, it was a totally different world. You know, it was very difficult financially. My motivation was already tenuous at best. I mean, what am I killing myself for all this? And so I just, I don't know, I got i got beat. You know, I just didn't have it in me. You know, just. Yeah, people don't, people don't realize that what you guys had to deal with back then. You know, I, I remember I had uh, Chris Campbell on here, and he said that in 82... I think it was 82 at the Worlds. They slept in like a barn. And, you know, <laughs> just crazy. You know, you know? Kemp has a story. When he won the Worlds, I don't know if it was 82. I think it was 82. He had to borrow some USA sweats to stand on the podium with a USA logo on his sweats. Wow. He didn't have sweats. And that's pretty, pretty bad. Yeah. Um... Who would you could you point to one guy that was the toughest you ever wrestled in your career? Well, Bannock was really tough. Um, Joe Loya was super tough. Uh, Vladimir Medesian was super tough. He was the Russian world champion. Um, uh, Alexander Nanev, he's a four time world finalist. I had him in the finals twice. He was super tough. Uh, I think he beat Desic one time in the world. And uh, who else is there? Douglas, you know, uh, Chris Rinky, Rebit Karabajak. Um, oh, man. There's so many tough guys. It, yeah. You know, Dwayne Goldman, Mike Deanna, um, uh, uh, Don Schuler. Um, Jim Shear, Rico Ciparelli, Mike Sheets. God, Mike Sheets was tough. Mike Sheets is the first American to beat me in five years. Oh, wow. He, yeah. And he is just, you know, he was really tough. So I never wrestled, but I mean, I wrestled him in practice with Kenny Monday. Holy crap, that dude's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> 
Bruce Baumgartner is super tough. Yeah, I've always heard that about him. Um, and, and he, you know, he doesn't get enough credit either. You know, it's one of those things where the guy was at the top of his game for 13 years straight and doesn't get the uh, doesn't get what he deserves as far as I'm concerned. You know, you hear it. And, and to be honest with you, I feel that way about you. Like I hear these people talking about the greatest of all time and I'm like, you know, sometimes people leave you off that list and I'm like, how are you going to leave Mark Schultz off that list? He's, you know, it, it bugs me. Um so, Can I tell you that I was named wrestler of the collegiate wrestler of the decade in the book, um, The Golden Era of Wrestling, the 1980s? Yeah. And, and I the, was voted for by my peers. Yeah. And the second guy was the guy you beat in the finals uh, at Bannock. Right. What are the chances that the number one and two guy would meet the same weight, the same year, you know, during the same decade? Yeah. It's pretty. pretty Pretty what do you remember about your 87 world championship? What's the biggest, best memory from that one? I mean, I got disqualified against the West German oh, for wow. uh, stalling. And I, the, after I got disqualified, I was beating him. But I tried a double wrist lock on him, and they had already outlawed that move, basically because of me in the 84 Olympics. And I did it on the Swiss German guy, and I, I don't know. I, don't, I didn't score any points. Nothing happened. He wasn't hurt, but the referees, it turned the referees against me, and nine seconds to go in the match, they disqualified me for stalling. Wow. So now, in order for me to get to the finals, I have to either pin, caution out, or shut out the defending world champion from Russia Vladimir Medesian, and I was like, well, how am I going to do this, you know? And so I go outside, and some friend of mine, uh, Jeff Callard, he, I see this beer bottle just coming down in front of my face, you know? And I got to wrestle that night, but I'm like, ah, crap. And I just take the bottle and drink it anyway, and Bruce is like, he's like, you can you can do it, Mark. Bruce Baumgartner, he's like, you can do it, Mark. And, I, and I, I'm drinking this beer, and I'm like, no, I can't. And he goes, oh, I forgot about the, the power of negative reinforcement. <laughs> I was like, that's right. Yeah. And then that night, I shut him out, one to nothing. And I had Bill Wick in my corner. He was like my good luck charm. And I wrestled Nanev in the finals and beat him two to one. So that was, uh, and then afterwards, that was probably the funnest drug test I've ever taken. Afterwards, I went into the drug testing room. Of course, they require all the champions to get drug tested. Well, so I'm in this room with this Korean, North Korean world champion, who I just love this guy because he is an incredible, incredible wrestler. He was losing. He got caught in a front headlock. And the set against South Korea in the finals, and he got strong twice in a row, and he's behind six to nothing. And he's got this frog hop double where he just leaps like a frog into you, you know, and he just goes boing, 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 boing across the mat. And he starts coming back one point at a time, one point at a time. And at the final seconds, he got a, his last point and wins the match. Incredible match. And so me and him were stuck in the drug testing room, and they asked us, do you want water, juice, or beer? 
But we just won the world. So we're like, beer, of course, you know. So we're drinking all this beer and we're getting hammered. And they keep asking us, you got a PA? You got a PA? And we wanted more free beer. So we're like, no, no, not really. But really, we had to go really bad. Yeah. And so finally, as we couldn't hold it anymore, we're just drunk and skunk. We're, we're pissing in this little tiny bottle. And it's just going all over our hands and our feet and our floor. And, I'm spilling it on the lab technician and I hand it to him and I get it all over his coat and everything. But and we were like, we didn't speak each other's language, but no matter what he said, I would laugh. And no matter what I said, he would laugh. But it, didn't, it was funny because I couldn't understand him, but we were both laughing. Yeah. So we were having fun. Uh, that's great. Um, tell me about the 88 Olympics in uh, Seoul, right? It was in Seoul? Yeah. I... Basically, uh, through my last match in the 80 Olympics, a lot of people think I was injured. It's not true. I actually threw that match because it occurred to me during that tournament that I would I could not win an Olympic gold medal for that creep, Joan DuPont, and basically threatened to ruin my career in a locker room. And he ended up ruining my career. He killed my motivation. I had no motivation to be and it was so weird because he's so rich he could have given us anything but he kept us kind of in poverty in a way and we couldn't really it was hard to escape you know it's hard to i should i wish i would have joined the military i really regret that now but i grew up in the vietnam era and i saw there was a guy living in our house my dad rents this house that we were, and the guy went to vietnam and he came back totally screwed up on ptsd and I was like, no way am I going to let that happen to me. So I didn't think the military was an option for me, but I really regret it now. But, yeah, I just I just threw my last match, and it just happened to be for my guy from Turkey, you know, and I beat, the, I broke the Turks' arm in 84. And they say, in Turkey, they, what they say, or I've been told, that this guy got revenge for the first Turkish guy that I heard. But... The truth is, it didn't matter if the guy was from Turkey or Russia or Cuba or anywhere. I would have thrown the match to anybody because I didn't think, I didn't want to win for, for Team Fox Catcher, for John DuPont's team, in which I I hate that name, Fox Catcher, but the publishers use that name to take advantage of the publicity around the movie for my book. And so my autobiography is being Fox Catcher, unfortunately, but it's just a name, so uh, screw, but yeah, that's and then I never wrestled again after the 88 Olympics. I just lost my motivation, and then I got the job at BYU, became the head coach, and fought in the UFC. Yeah, yeah, I saw that you you fought in the UFC and you had what a few hours notice. Yeah, one day, one day notice. Wow, I was training Dave Benito who. They call him Dangerous Dave. He's a Canadian. He was like second or first in, in, in his weight, at heavyweight in Canada. And my Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor, Pedro Sauer, called me up and he said, uh, Dave Benito's coming down to train with me. Do you want to train with him while he's here? And I'm like, sure. So he comes down and we train together every day for like two weeks. And then at the last day of the second week, I slammed him on his hand. I had a double leg, and I slammed him, and he, his hand 
and broke a bone in his hand. And I took him to the hospital and the doctor said, if we put a cast on, obviously you can't fight, but if we put a plate in, you might be able to hide it and still be able to fight, blah, blah, blah. So I told him, I'm going to go to Detroit with you. I told him at the hospital, if you can't fight, I might, I'm going to take your place. But uh, I expected him to be the one fighting. And so I went to Detroit with him to be his corner man to throw the towel in because I thought he'd get in trouble with that hand. So at the press conference, the, somebody ratted him out and he, he showed, the doctor came over and looked at his hand and fight. And so I, everybody turned and looked at me and I was like, okay. So I walk over to the promoters and I say, what do you think about me taking Dave's place? And they said, and I quote, oh, that's a great idea. You're an Olympic champion. When you lose, it'll be even better. Wow. I was like, what? <laughs> anyway, I had already been training no holes barred and there was my heavyweight from BYU. Uh, Mike Bolster, who's super tough. And me and him would put on gloves and take our shoes off, and we would fight no holes barred in the BYU wrestling room every day for like three months before that fight. And so I knew that uh, I pretty much knew I was going to win because here I am fighting a wrestler, and Gary, who's one of my best friends, uh, is not a wrestler. And he's a tremendous striker and tremendously strong, tremendously mentally tough. But I just felt there's no way he could beat me. Or no way he could take me down for sure. And if he does, no way he can hold me down. So I kind of knew I was I would beat him. And then after I told him I, I wanted to take the place, they gave me like a, the night to think it over. I told them I needed the night to think it over. And they kept calling me during the night, like four times, waking me up every couple hours. Like, hey, we need an answer. We need an answer. Finally, at 10 in the morning, they said, hey, if you don't tell us right now, we're going to find someone else. So I went downstairs, and Pedro was there with me. And I went over to this corner, and I started praying. And I just felt like, Somebody was behind me, like my brother or maybe Jesus or somebody was telling me, look, you got to do this. So I got up, I turned around, I said, I told Pedro I'm doing it. And then we signed the contract. Me and Pedro went out back to the hotel and started doing some wind sprints just to warm up, you know. And then I they got tested for HIV. And I, got, I, got, I bought a, a cup to wear on my groin and, some, one of Pedro's students was there with a pair of wrestling shoes. And one of the rules, there was only two rules, no eye gouging, no biting. But there was a third rule that said if you wore shoes, you couldn't kick. And I thought, at first I wasn't going to wear those shoes, but then the, the shoes fit me. And I thought, I need traction for my style, the way I want to be able to shoot. And so I wore shoes and that's how that's all wow that's an awesome story dude um what what made you not did you just not want to do it anymore no after i did it there was a lot of negative publicity this was banned in 47 states or something like that and it was considered human cockfighting and oh. uh, there was a lot of negative publicity surrounding my comp competing in this UFC, and so 
They put a picture of me after I won. They put a picture of me, a color picture of me in the arena. And there's blood on the ground. There's blood on my hands. There's blood on my head. And uh, a lot of BYU had just got a new president, uh, uh, Merrill Bateman. And a lot of women were criticizing me fighting in this because I'm a BYU faculty member. Oh, and, yeah. and these women were saying, we don't think it's becoming conduct of a BYU faculty member at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to turn one of God's children into a hamburger. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and that quote was in the paper, and I got called on the carpet at Merrill Bateman's office, and he said, Mark, you that is not what we're about here at BYU. You can... Uh, still work here but you can't fight and if you want to fight you can't work here so i had three kids i needed health insurance there wasn't the the money back then it wasn't that great i mean i got fifty thousand dollars for that one fight but um there was no money in ufc unless you won and if you lost not only do you not get paid, but you got a bunch of hospital bills you probably have to pay. So I just thought, I'm 36 years old. My back had also just herniated my lower back. And I was crawling around in my house on my hands and knees for three weeks. And I thought, well, it's time to just check it in. You know, And that pretty much ended my athletic career. Okay. You're, you and you and Dave were uh, combined uh, the most successful brother combination in in, in the history of uh, USA wrestling. Uh, what what made Dave so good? Honestly, I think dyslexia had a big part in it. Um, he also he was uh, a gigantic kid, and when he was little, he was really huge, and. He didn't really grow that much after that, but when he was little, he was a gigantic kid, and he had dyslexia, and they thought he was retarded. They didn't know what dyslexia was. He couldn't read. He said the letters D and B and and, uh, Q and P would all flip back and forth and turn up and down, and he just couldn't read, but he figured out how to get by without being able to read somehow, and it also made him uncoordinated because dyslexia what happens is one side of your brain does not take dominance. Like if I'm right-handed, that means I'm left brain dominant. Well, he was left-handed, but he kicked with his right foot and he shot with his right eye. And it actually turned into an advantage because he was ambidextrous. He could do moves equally well to both sides, which made it very difficult to scout, very difficult to wrestle. And uh, when he was in the sixth grade, he, he, everybody knew Dave. When I, uh, one time some kid made fun of him when he was in elementary school, and he picked the kid up and cracked his head open on the sidewalk, and he became known as the toughest kid in school. And he liked that reputation. He would protect me if kids picked on me, which I really liked. And he, when he got into the sixth grade, a couple of, uh, brothers, they're called the Barnum brothers, and they flung two grades, and they were huge, and they were great athletes. 
And I don't think Dave liked the fact that he was losing his dominance as the, as, you know, his status. And one of the teachers told him you should get into wrestling. I think it would help your dyslexia. And it did. It cured his dyslexia. Wow. He got a 3.3 GPA out of college. It was higher than mine. And uh, uh, once he started wrestling, it was like a fish to water. He just loved it. It's all he cared about. It's all he did. You know, he kept a notebook of wrestling moves. He carried wrestling shoes around his neck everywhere. He wore a singlet everywhere. He'd wrestle anybody, anytime, anywhere, on the grass, on the sidewalk, anything. And he'd go to the colleges and challenge those guys. I mean, he worked out constantly. And uh, that's that's what made him so good. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I actually lost my little brother on Easter Sunday, and he also had a form of dyslexia that they never... Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I understand that. Unfortunately, he never wrestled, but um, uh, I wanted to ask you, if you don't mind, do you, would you recount that dream he told your dad when he was little? Because I remember something about that from the book, and I was like, I got to ask him about that. Um, yeah. When Dave was four years old, he, my dad took him to a playground, and they, uh, he said to my dad, hey, do you want to hear a big secret? And he said, yeah. He goes, you won't laugh at me, will you? He said, no, I won't laugh. He goes, okay. Before I was born, I was standing in the clouds, and I was surrounded by 12 men. And the oldest one pointed down at the earth, and he said, you're going to go down there to be tested. And then Dave walked away from my dad, and went over to play on the swings, and my dad ran over to my brother and said, Dave, I have to ask you, did you pass the test? And he said, oh, yeah, I passed, but I'm not going to be here very long. Man, that, that gave me chills, dude, all over my body hearing that story. Um, geez. Uh, what, what do you miss most about your brother? Oh, man. Everything, yeah. We were like twins in a way. I mean, even though he was 17 months old, I purposely tried to be as much like him as I could. And we got so close. And we were trained together every day together. And we were, I could, we could finish each other's sentences, you know, like twins did. It was almost like we were thinking with one brain. And I just, I miss his, it, Dave had an incredible ability over me. If I was worried about something, Dave would just say, don't worry about it. And I would stop worrying about it. Nobody else could say that. Yeah. And, but he had that, the power, you know. Yeah. Were you, uh, were you happy with the job Mark Ruffalo did portraying him? Yeah. I don't like my character. Oh, you didn't? That's not Channing's fault. That's ben, director Bennett Miller's fault. Director Bennett Miller was quoted in the Washington Times as saying, my intention from the beginning was to disrespect and demean Mark Schultz. And when I heard that, I got on Twitter 
and threatened him. And I, I was gonna. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, after about two weeks after making that threat, I, I apologized. I didn't apologize for standing up for myself, but I apologized for the harshness of my language that I used on Twitter. Those tweets were trans copied and transferred all over the world at that time. And I didn't care because this guy disrespected me on a worldwide level. And even the movie, it's very disrespectful towards me. I don't like that movie at all. Really? Yeah. I think it sucks. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I'd be honest with you. Some of the wrestling scenes, I was like, well, they could have done a, a better job with the wrestling scenes. But um, but the, the story of it, you know, obviously... Was there a time that you could point to that you realized that DuPont was losing his mind? Like, or was he always kind of crazy? Well, uh, it was, a, I would say, eccentric, you know. He, I knew he was faking at trial because, well, I knew he was faking from the beginning because I, I knew him pretty well, unfortunately. I wish I never met the guy. Yeah. But, um... During the trial, he would grow his hair out, grow his beard out, and they'd wheel him in a wheelchair. And then he gets convicted. And during the sentencing, he's clean cut. He walks back in the courtroom. No, no wheelchair. It was all an act. Yeah. But he got what he deserved. You know what's interesting is Dave protected me, you know, from bullies and just. He was such a such a great influence on me, and he always, and it's like he was still protecting me, even his death. He made Dupont pay for ruining my motivation to compete, and for killing him, obviously. But I was planning on killing Dupont. I in my book, I I detail how I was going to do it, and I didn't do it, of course. But I thought about it really hard because he deserved it you know he was a really manipulative yeah. really sick son of a bitch yeah what? I thought you know bringing a rich guy into the sport of wrestling would be a great idea because we had no money so we bring this guy in and the guy's a psychopath and he just destroyed everything he touched yeah but I think USA Wrestling got the idea of bringing a rich guy into the sport, you know, and they've got Mike Nogratz, who's a really great man, and he, uh, now wrestling gets gold medals, get a quarter million dollars. Mike gives them a quarter million dollars for winning an Olympic gold medal. And so, you know, <laughs> anyway, that's that's history. Yeah, it, you know, it just is it is it hard though to 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 see how good they have it now as compared to how they treated you guys? I mean, does it bother you at all? Yeah, yeah. I can't I can't really watch wrestling anymore because I see how much different it is now as opposed to when we were doing it, and it's depressing. I mean, I'm gl I'm happy for them, but I. It was a different world. It was like a different planet. 
Yeah. Well, I, I, I am, I, again, just absolutely amazed at what you accomplished in the short time that you were in the sport, relatively speaking. Um, it just, it just blows my mind that you were able to do all the things you did. And I, I, is this what I remember right from the flow film that you basically never, you either won gold or you didn't place? Is that right? That's right. I only have, all of my medals are gold medals. I have three silver medals though, but I have no bronze medals. If I, I'm the type of guy that if there's no chance of winning, I lose my motivation, I drop out, I lose whatever. I just, that's why I say sometimes people will wonder, wonder who's going to show up. Is it going to be Mark Schultz, the champion, or the other guy? And my brother is totally different. He's got like eight world medals, and two of them are gold. I've only got three world medals. All three are gold. I was going to ask you, do you have an opinion on what's harder, the Worlds or the Olympics? What? Do you have an what, opinion what? on what's harder to win, the Worlds or the Olympics? Well, it's the same tournament. Yeah. Same guys. Exactly the same. I mean, the Olympics is more pressure because it's only once every four years. So Yeah. There was a ton of pressure on us. I mean, the amount of pressure is just... It's incredible. Yeah. Well, the last thing I'll ask you before I let you get out of here is what would you like people to remember about Mark Schultz? I'd like them to remember that I threw my last match at the 80 Olympics, and but I went out a winner in the UFC. Yeah. And, and I switched to jiu-jitsu uh, after I got done. After I quit wrestling and... I have a black belt under Pedro Sauer now, and I I think wrestling is the best foundation you can have for any martial art. And I think in the future, the champions that are going to come out of the UFC are going to be guys that have combined wrestling and jiu-jitsu together. There's kind of a psychological separation between the two sports. You don't see a lot of crossover wrestlers going into jiu-jitsu or jiu-jitsu guys wrestling, but... I'm one of the few guys that have crossed over and combined the two sports. And now I go around to seminars and I teach people how to use wrestling takedowns because wrestling takedowns are the best takedowns. And if you're fighting on a hard surface like concrete or something and you're a wrestler, chances are you're going to be on top and your opponent's head's going to be right next to the concrete and you could just smash it into the concrete and turn the ground into a weapon. Yeah. Um, actually, I have one more question, and that's about your dad. He was a stand-up comedian? That was his job? Yeah, he was a drama professor at Menlo College, and he had an improvisational comedy theater he called The Illegitimate Theater. And I used to go watch him when I was a kid, and he was so funny. I thought, this is the funniest guy in the world. He had the audiences rolling on the floor laughing, like, all night long. And I thought, why isn't he a bigger star? But I thought he was the greatest comedian in the world. Yeah. He's an improvisational comedian, and that's the hardest type of comedy. It's improvisational. Yeah. Well, I, I can tell you it's a very unfair business. It's not always the funniest guy for sure that uh, gets noticed, especially these days with social media and everything. 
Um, and you're a very funny guy. I don't know if you realize how funny you are, you know, without even trying, you're a funny guy. Um, was Dave funny? Yeah, he was. I mean, I think I like to, to make people laugh a little bit more than him, but yeah, he was, he was funny, you know, I mean, it's in our genes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll let you get out of here, but man, I have to tell you that before I did this podcast, I was I was like nervous. I was like doing breathing exercises, like I'm getting ready to talk to Mark Schultz. <laughs> so I I I, uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to do this, and you're an absolute legend of the sport. And uh, and God bless you. Just thank you so much. Thanks. Send me the link when this is going to air, okay? Okay. Or where and when. Okay. I definitely will. Okay, thanks, Tim. You I bet. Appreciate it, but Have a great day, Take man. Care. Take care. Bye-bye. Wow. Mark Schultz, everybody. That dude is an absolute monster. Um, and I was. I was nervous before we did this because uh, I've done a lot of these now, but he's the most credentialed guy I've had on here, and... Uh, just a physical presence. Um, there's so many things. I could have kept him on here for three hours, and <laughs> I had to. I had to let him go. But holy lord, that was cool for me. Uh, I got chills when he was talking about Dave and that dream, especially. And uh, anyway, I could ramble all day like a schoolgirl about it. But that was super cool for me. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And uh, make sure you go to making it happen. M A C A N it happen. dot com. Help out little bow making. And, uh, yeah, that's about it. So God bless all of you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to the channel and take care. Bye. Do us both a favor and click on that subscribe button.